Good morning. Uh, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at Life. And uh, if you're here for the first time or the first time in a long time, we want to welcome you. If you've been here for a long time, we want to welcome you as well. We're glad you're here. Now, we've been going through a series called Unleashed. And the series started out, Steve Serbaugh came up and, and he taught us about how God is taking the believer to a place where they begin to model a life of Christ, where, where God is beginning to make us into the image of Christ. And Steve talked about how the gospel itself can influence that, how understanding that Jesus died upon the cross out of love and sacrifice for our sin, and so that we can be with God forever, and how that had affected him and had helped him overcome some pretty powerful addictions in his own life. Then Chad has spoke to us for the last three Sundays, and he's talked about how God uses the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible itself, the Word of God, and repentance in continuing to bring the believer into the life that has an image of Christ. This Sunday, I am charged with dealing with the issue of suffering, how suffering can nip away at us and, and bring us to a closer closer relationship, a closer understanding and an image of Christ. Now, this series has been interesting and is aimed at the believer. But I want to extend that a little bit today. I want to open this up to a question, a question that haunts Christians and non-Christians alike. And that question is, why do bad things happen to good people? I used to ask Christians this. Before I was a believer, I would challenge people who, who were well-meaning, loving people who were trying to speak into my life. And I would challenge them with this question. And a lot of them would just kind of fall over themselves trying to answer it. Some people would say, well, there's no good people. You know what? I thought that answer was inadequate. It might be theologically, there might be a stand you could take, but, but really it was harsh. And I understood something, that in the Bible I had read that there were places where there were good people, upright people, God-fearing people, people who were pleasing God, who suffered tremendously. I understood something that they did not, that the answer to this question had to go right to the throne room of God. And a man named C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer who wrote a lot of books about uh, Christ, uh, he called it the problem of pain. It would be easy to understand suffering if only bad or evil people suffered. But we know that good people suffer too. So we have a, a big question that has to be answered. One place in the Bible where this question is directly addressed is the book of Job. Now Job is a book in the Old Testament. It was probably the oldest book ever written. Uh, certainly the book of Genesis deals with earlier times, you know, in the beginning. But Job was written well before Moses wrote his books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So it is probably older than all of those. And there are things in it that give that impression, things about how it talks about possessions. And so we're going to go into this book of Job Partially because it talks about suffering, but also partially because of something else. In the book of Job, we see through a curtain 
into the actual throne room of God. And something's going on there. Something that often we don't get to be aware of in the Bible. We peer into the throne room of God and we see that both God and Satan, the enemy, the accuser, are interested in this man, Job. And Job will become part of this battlefield between God and Satan. And Job will suffer tremendously. And so we're going to study this area of the Bible. And I think we can deduce that just as God and Satan were interested in this man named Job, that the same is true of every believer. That the same thing may be going on in heaven right now that affects you in your life. So we're going to study this book today. We're going to look at it. And my purpose here today is to peel back that curtain and take a look at what's going on in heaven. And perhaps we can understand better why bad things do happen to good people. So if you'll bow your heads with me, we'll pray and we'll dig into the Word. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning. And I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit that people who believe will, will have their eyes opened and will see you in a big and new way. And for people who do not believe, I pray that your Holy Spirit will draw them to you. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this collection of people. And I pray that you will protect this service as we deal into some difficult questions because there is a war. There's a war between you and Satan. And we are on that battlefield. And so, Lord, we pray for your protection during this service, that ears will hear and hearts will respond. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who died for us. And it's in his name that we even gather. Amen. Now, like I said, before I was a question, I used to, or before I was a Christian, I used to question Christians about the issue of suffering because I found that they really wrestled with this. They really had a hard time understanding how a all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God could allow there to be evil and suffering in the world. A man named John MacArthur, a noted theologian, addressed a convention of Christian pastors this way. And he said, ultimately... You cannot talk about suffering without talking about the fundamental nature and purpose of God. So this morning, we're going to address that. And I want to give you some answers. Some answers to this question that are true. They actually come straight from the Bible. But answers also that can bring you joy. That can lead you to a higher level of worship in your life when you understand them. When you understand how God can work. Answers that we can embrace and give to others. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Job. If you don't have one with you, it'll be on the screens. Let's begin in the first chapter of Job, the first verse. There was a man in the land of, of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, that would be like 3,000 Mercedes, 500 yoke of oxen. Steve uh, Ashelman pointed out to me that would be like, like maybe John Deere's. And 500 female donkeys. 
and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people of the East. There are a couple things to notice here. First of all, it says that Job's a good man. It says that Job has a lot of possessions. Now, in the early days of the Jewish faith, the, the Hebrew religion, the people who wrote the Old Testament, basically it worked like this. If, if you had a lot of wealth and health, if you were physically good, then they believed that you must be pleasing God because God was blessing you. And the converse was true. If you were sick or if you did not have possessions or had lost possessions, God must be punishing you. He must be cursing you because you have displeased God. So the people would have seen Job as being someone who is pleasing God by his life. And Job's life does seem to be great, agreed? You can check off the list of things in his life and compare it to some of the things in yours. His family is great. His finances are great. His health is great. His relationship with God is great. His female donkeys, great. What, you don't have female donkeys? No, okay. Well, his life is great, okay? Everything is going great for Job. And then a situation unfolds in heaven. And Job is completely unaware that this happened. Let's pick up the book of Job at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, basically angels, the heavenly hosts, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, I just want to stop there for a second. The translation in the ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, is the word considered. But the Hebrew word here has a special connotation. It's, it's like a military term. The word considered means, do you have a plan of attack? So when God is speaking to Satan here, he's asking Satan, do you have a plan of attack for my servant Job. That there is none like him, God says, on the earth and blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him, a, a basically a plants that you could not walk through or, or like a fence? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has? On every side you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The first thing to notice here, the very first thing is that notice that Satan is on a leash. He can't do anything to Job or his possessions unless God allows him. And here, Job is allowed to be tested by Satan. God releases that leash and gives Satan some room to work with. Now, he's not allowed to kill him. He's not allowed to touch his person at this point. But he is allowed to do anything else. Job is going to suffer, and he's going to suffer greatly. 
The other thing to notice here, he's not being punished. He's not being punished. This has nothing to do with the chastisement or discipline of God. In fact, here's how God himself in verse 8 describes Job. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Listen, in the Bible, when somebody's sinning and God punishes them or a group of people is, is rebelling against God and he's doing something about it, he tells them, he lets them know. It's clear. God will perhaps send a prophet or an angel and they're told you need to change. Or they're told that they're going to be punished because they haven't. And so here, exactly the opposite is happening. God is saying about Job that he is blameless. Now, does that mean that he has no sin? I don't, the scripture doesn't really say that, okay? It doesn't say that, but it does say that God is not disciplining or punishing Job for sin. Some people will say, well, his, his children were having parties and were drinking wine. And, and so that's why. In fact, one of the people who will talk to Job later in the book tries to infer that. But God's not saying that. God's not saying that at all. Job has done nothing, has done nothing against God that brings upon these things upon him. So let's continue on and see what happens. So Satan's leash has been loosened. He can now do some things. In verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine, their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of a sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So basically, Job has lost his Mercedes and his John Deere's. While he was yet speaking, so he hadn't even stopped. While he's yet speaking, another servant comes in and said, The fire of God fell upon from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, so this servant's not even done, and another servant comes in. And said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. One of the things I want you to notice about this. Satan uses three things. One thing, Satan's powerful. He is powerful. He can kill you. He is killing Job's children. Secondly, Satan is using tactics or elements that would immediately make anyone of that day believe that is coming directly from the hand of God. In the Old Testament, we see God using the enemies of the Jewish people, using a whirlwind or using fire to rain down punishment. What are the three things that Satan uses? 
He uses the enemies of the Jewish people. He uses the fire from heaven. And he uses a wind, or some translations will say a whirlwind. Things that the people would have assumed came directly from God. Satan's crafty. He's smart about this. In verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. In short, Job gets slammed. Everything falls apart. Everything he's worked for in his life, everything he loves is destroyed in an incident. And, and you can see how before one servant finishes delivering dreadful news, the next servant arrives and delivers even more dreadful news. It gets worse and worse and worse. Everything he has crumbles. Has that ever happened to you? Life was going great. Everything was good. And then there was a day. Maybe you were married and, and, and your wife, you had children, and everything seemed great. And suddenly your spouse came to you one day and said, I want a divorce. And now you barely see your children. Or maybe life was going great. You were saving up for retirement. You'd been with that one special person for 50 years. You'd been married for 50 years, and you both saved and put money away so that when you retired, you could travel the world and see everything. And then there was a day where your spouse became very sick, and suddenly all your financial resources are thrown into the medical cost, and then they died. And you find yourself alone, and all those dreams are dashed. Or maybe... You're watching your child or grandchild playing in the backyard, filled with joy. And then there was a day where suddenly you got a phone call, and they said your child was dead. It died in a terrible accident. If you were going to write a book that was the story of your life, and I asked the question in your bulletin, the first question, if there was a book that told the story of your life, would there ever be a chapter that started by saying, now there was a day? I know a lot of your stories. And if I was writing that book, I could find that chapter where everything changed, where everything suddenly turned around. For me, I can look at my sister. Three months ago, I was talking to my sister about uh, getting someone to do some work on her house. And then a month later, she called me and said, they did a CAT scan. They found a tumor. Now there was a day where everything changed. The tumor turned out to be cancer. And when they tried to do surgery to take it out, it, they, she had a heart attack. And she's been in ICU for, for four weeks. And, and now already... New cancer growths have come. She's given only a month to live. Three months ago, she's fine. Now there was a day. And everything changes. That is how our life is. Suddenly, any of us can be hit. And what do you think Satan thought? Because Job's response to this is this. He worshiped God. 
He loses everything, but he worships God in spite of his losses. And he won't charge God with wrongdoing, even though it looks like God did it directly through a whirlwind, through a fire from heaven, or from the use of enemies. It looks very much like this is God's hand upon him. He doesn't charge God with wrongdoing. What do you think Satan thought? Well, we don't have to speculate. It's in the Bible. Let's turn to the book of Job, chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you plan of attack for my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So God lets out that leash a little bit more. He can now hurt Job physically, but he can't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Have you ever seen somebody become the instrument of Satan? What did Satan tell God that Job would do? Curse him to his face. And Satan believes that Job will give in. And, and someone who tries to trick Job into doing that is Job's wife. Satan can use people. But here's Job's response. But he said to her, You speak of one of foolish women who speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not receive evil? Remember, he thinks this may have come from God because there are things that look like God. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The book of Job is long. And I'm telling you that because it's 42 chapters long. We're about through the second one. The next 40 will get us done about 5, 5.15 today. So sit back, relax. We'll be done just in time for the Life Beats uh, concert. Yeah, yeah. Time this out perfect. Okay. It's long. It's a long book in which the friends of Job try and speak into his life. Some of them say some pretty important things, some good things about God, about talking about God's righteousness. But some of them speak about things they don't understand. You know, when somebody's suffering, maybe the best thing to say to them is nothing. Maybe our human wisdom isn't what they need. Maybe what they need is our presence, just a ministry of presence. 
I, I've stood at many viewings and heard some of the most ridiculous things said to a family. And maybe the best thing you can say to them is, I'm sorry, and hug them and tell them we care. Job's friends, for the most part, exacerbate the situation. And it goes on and on and on. And finally, Job cracks. He finally gives in. And I've seen this in life. Somebody comes down with a diagnosis of cancer, or, and, and they say, I'm not going to give up on you, God. I'm not going to turn my back on you, or a tragedy happens in their life. And then it lingers on. The chemo lingers on. The pain lingers on. The suffering, the surgery, the radiation. And they begin to weaken. And they come to a point where they begin to question whether God is good. And that's what happens to Job. By chapter 30, Job says this in verse 19. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. No longer is Job saying, blessed is your name. Now Job is accusing God of cruelty. Now you might think, you might think at this point that Job is a failure. But I'm telling you, it's at this point that perhaps is the most important part of the story. Job is a casualty in this warfare between God and Satan. And in any war, there will be casualties. There are people wounded and there are people killed. And Job is in this battle. And Job has gotten weaker and weaker. It's at this point, though, that something amazing happens. God reveals his glory to Job. He speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. And he reminds Job of all that he does, all that he has. He reminds him that he created everything. He created the stars, the earth, the people, everything on it. And it's here at this moment that the last enemy in the life of a believer dies. In the last enemy in the life of Job has died. That enemy, love of self. Self-love. It's the last thing we want to give. We still want our way. We still want our will to override God's will. But here, broken and hopeless, Job finally gives in. He finally lets that desire to have his way go. In our series, Unleashed, we have been talking about becoming the image of Christ, about coming very closer and closer to that in the life of a believer. The very last thing that dies, the very last thing that we give up is love of self. Not my way, Lord. Your way. Surrender entirely. And self dies very hard. And Satan knows that. And so Job has fought and fought, and then he gives. He now is faced with the fact that he is in no control of his life at all. And at this point, he begins to understand the greatness of God. If you're a believer, 
or if you're even a non-believer, I want you to think about this. When you think about your way in life and getting your way, and it's natural for us to do that. It's part of our natural self to even try and minimize our pain in our lives or try and take control of situations. That's normal. But I want you to think about something. When you die, when you die and go to heaven, if you are a believer, you will not be standing in front of a mirror looking at yourself. You will be standing before the throne of God, before Christ. And what do you want to have been the most important thing in your life when you get there? That you followed the will of God or that you followed your own schemes and desires and will? Job gives in. In chapter 42, Job says this, I know that you can do all things, speaking to God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You see, when we suffer, we ask, why God? But God's always asking us a question in the midst of our suffering. And God's question is, who do you say I am? Am I your God? Am I the one you follow, you worship? Or are you trying to make me your genie just to make things easy for you? Job gives in and accepts God in his entirety. And so as a response, Job will actually be blessed. He will actually be restored. But not because he could do it. He could not. He is powerless to do it. It's because of the grace of God. And what do you think happened in heaven? Satan sees this on the earth or in heaven. I don't know where he was at the time, but he sees this. The angels see this. And everyone who has read the book of Job for 3,500 years has seen this. We have seen that Satan lost the battle over Job. That Job has given in to God entirely. So in conclusion, I want to address two more questions that have to do with this whole sermon. The first question is this, the third one in your bulletin. Is God made more glorious because evil happens? Or is he made less glorious because evil happens? In other words, glorious. Is, is he of more value in your life? Is he of more worth in your life because there's evil in the world and suffering? Or less? If you answer this correctly, it will lead you to heights of worship that you have never experienced because you are worshiping a powerful God who defeats evil and suffering. What is the first thing you do when you suffer? When everything, anything bad's happening, what do we do first? We pray to God because we know he can control it. We know that he has power over it. If you answer the question wrong and you think that evil has some sort of influence over God, some sort of control over God, 
You're worshiping a, a diminished God. The God that you have is not the real God. The truth is, God is made more glorious because evil happens, because then we're able to worship a God that defeats the evil in the universe. Let me ask you this. If it was heaven on earth, if there was no suffering, no death, no sin, everything was perfect here, would you appreciate the cross? Would you appreciate heaven as much? But it's because those things exist that we appreciate at time where we're left out of this place, where we no longer suffer or see suffering in others. We appreciate Christ's death upon the cross. The last question today, the one I started with, why does an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God allow suffering and evil? Why does an all powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God allows suffering and evil. I think we can address this four ways, four answers, answers that can bring you joy. First of all, suffering reveals what is truly in our hearts. Suffering reveals what is truly in our hearts. Are we going to continue to worship the things of this world when we lose them? Or are we going to worship God? Are we going to turn to God and understand the reality of our heart is, is, is shown when we suffer? The author of the book that this series is based on, uh, a pastor named Moore, described it this way. He had a friend who was a, a, uh, who was a sculptor. And he asked him one day, how do you know that, how to to make the, the sculpture, the figures that you do. And he says, well, the figure's already in there. I just take this block of stone and I chip away the imperfections until what's left is what's beautiful. The author describes that the same way as suffering in our lives. That God is using this suffering to chip away the imperfections and make us more into the image of Christ, bring us closer to him. So first of all, suffering reveals what's really in our hearts. Secondly, suffering changes our view of God. When in the midst of things that we cannot control, we understand that we cannot control everything. And we turn to the one who is in control of everything. We learn that we are not the God in the world. We learn that we're not the God of our lives. Third, by also suffering, we can appreciate God's suffering on the Christ's suffering upon the cross. In the garden, Christ is knowing that he's going here. He's going to the cross. And he knows there's fear. He feels it. Maybe you felt that. A while back, there was a suspicion that maybe I had cancer. And every day, while I was waiting for the biopsy results, that was right in front of me. Cancer, cancer, cancer. It turned out that the biopsies were negative, but that fear of what could happen, of what was ahead, the same thing that Christ felt awaiting his time at the cross and his torture. We can appreciate Christ's suffering because we have suffering and fear ourselves. We can appreciate what that meant for him to die for our sins. 
just what a sacrifice that was. Next week, we're going to share communion, a way of remembering Christ's suffering there, how his blood was poured out and his body was broken. As we take the juice and bread, we remember him. And it reminds us of those moments that he had, that he still said to God, your will, not my will, according to Acts 2, by the predetermined plan of God, he was handed over to evil men. And fourth, the fourth reason we can understand, that we can reach for, is we discover greater heights of worship when we embrace God's ultimate victory over suffering and evil. Ultimately, evil and suffering brings glory to God. What does that mean? What does the word glory mean? Well, we've talked about glory meaning good attention to God. Maybe another way of, of, of saying it is this. It's the public pronouncement, the public display of the worth and value of God in our lives. When in suffering, we understand that God is in control of everything and that he will defeat the enemy. We can go through this and understand that it's bringing him glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that whether you're in this body, a, a spiritual body, or, 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 or a glorified body, I'm not sure. But can you imagine the day that we see Satan cast into the lake of fire? Can you imagine the cheers that will be raised in heaven by the angels and by us as we go through this time of knowing it's gone? I've read Revelation. I know there's going to be a time it goes. How do we bring glory to God? How do we bring this public display of his goodness? There's a man whose name was Spofford. And he lived in the 1870s. And he was a wealthy man. He owned a lot of property in Chicago. And this man, he lost his son when he was two years old. And then he... Was, he had a lot of property in Chicago, which was destroyed by the great Chicago fire. And at that time, there was no insurance, so all his wealth was gone. And he sent his wife and his four daughters on a steamship to go to Europe, where he was going to try and start over. The ship crashed into another ship and sank. Four of his daughters were drowned. And only his wife survived. And she sent a telegram, I alone survive. There was a day. There was a day in the life of Spofford that he lost everything. Soon afterwards, he got on a steamship himself and was heading to Europe to join his wife. And as he passed near the place where the ship had sunk with his four daughters, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well. It is well with my soul. And every time that song is sung, it brings glory to God. Every time it brings praises to God. The testimony of Job, there was a day broken and lost everything. 
The testimony of Spofford. There was a day broken and lost everything. The testimony of Jesus. There was a day and it seemed like he had lost everything. Perhaps that's your testimony. Perhaps even today. Maybe you're here today and you're going through some very tough times. If that's true, I want you to know there are people after this service when we close up that, that are available down in a prayer room. If you go out those back doors and turn to your right, there's a prayer room and they'll be waiting to pray with you, to, to minister to you, to, to sit with you. Even if you just want silence, they're there for you. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. This has been a very theological discussion. I have talked about some pretty heady things. And, and, and there's a danger whenever you do this that people will begin to think that you may not care. You know, I want to be serious with you here. If, if you lose your job or, or you lose your home or your spouse, you lose your health, your sister or a child, it's a hard thing. And I am not writing off your pain. I am not ignoring the hurt in your life. It's real. I weep with you. The last time I was up here, I, I, I talked about some widows in the congregation. I looked down and I saw one of them. I almost started crying because I know her pain. And to show you the work of the Holy Spirit, she had just lost her husband a few months ago. And, and I went out and I talked to her after the last service. And she said, that's one of the last things he said to me. He said, it's well with my soul. I had no idea. It's tough. It's hard. I understand that. It's hard to live in this world and suffer. But I want you to understand something. God wins. Satan will be defeated. In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, it says, speaking of God, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will come a day. There will come a day when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And can you imagine? Can you imagine the celebration in heaven? Can you imagine how we will cheer when we see him destroyed and we know that we live in a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be fine and all this has passed, all this is gone. Can you imagine our joy? Again, John MacArthur said something, something that I've shared with people in the past. All death can do to the believer is deliver him to Jesus. If you're not a believer, we gave you a communication card when it came in here. If you don't believe that you're a Christian or if you're confused about what this is all about, put on that communication card, I'd like to talk to a pastor or elder and we'll get hold of you and we'll sit down and we'll talk about what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ and what the cross means. If you're in pain today and you're suffering and you need somebody to spend time with you, Again, there's people in the prayer room ready for you. I'm going to invite the band to come out here. 
And yes, they're here. <laughs> Wonderful, beautiful people, right? We're going to close with worship. Why do we do this? Why do we sing songs? You thought about that? Is it just a tradition? No. We praise God. We praise God for his power over the enemy. We are speaking to God, and somehow there's something supernatural about all this. You're not here to listen to them. You're here to talk to God. You're here to lift up God and his greatness. And somehow there's something supernatural about that. You are on that battlefield. You are living in the battlefield between God and Satan. And as we join together in praise, our words join with the praises of all the churches around the world who are praising God this morning. And they join with the angels' voices as they praise God. And Satan may hear it. Perhaps he's going to and fro here. Maybe Satan is sitting next to you today. Ladies, don't look at your husbands. <laughs> Maybe he's here. And I want him to hear. I want him to hear that our God is greater. Our God is higher. Our God is more powerful. Our God's going to defeat you. And our God deserves all the glory, all the worth that we can bring to him, all the value in our lives. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to bow our heads and then we're going to give God glory. We're going to publicly pronounce before the universe how great he is. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, wherever someone in this room is suffering, I pray that someone will come around them and love them and help them in these difficult times. And Lord, I pray that you will use our suffering to bring glory to you. Lord, I pray that we will see you as the majestic conquering king that you are. Lord, as we praise you, we are declaring war against Satan. We are declaring war that we're on this battlefield, but we're on your side. So, Lord, we lift you up here today. I pray for protection. I pray for a hedge of protection around Life Church. I pray for a protection around this congregation. And I ask you to protect Steve and Chad and all the leaders here. Lord, you are great and you are worthy of our praise. Hear our praise. Let our words go straight into your throne room and hear how we love you. And we do this because of Jesus. And that's why we can gather together. And we thank you for him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.